Life here is a journey we walk by faith And there will always be a mountain in our way But right here in this moment May our strength be renewed As we recall what God has done And how we've seen Him move If there's anybody here No. 
Well, good morning. What a joy to see you here today. And I want you to know this today, that the Lord is in this place, and He stands ready to do something amazing today, to fill our cup as we worship Him together in truth and song today. Come, thou fount, let's sing to the one who is the giver of all blessings. And we sing about His blessed assurance today. So why don't you stand together, and let's sing together. Come, thou fount of every blessing,
seated for just a bit. I am so thankful just to be here and worship with you today. And today, it could be the day that the Lord chooses to do something miraculous in all of our lives. Sometimes I think we get, a, we get scared of that. Amen? We get afraid of that. Today, don't be afraid. It's raining outside. Where else are you going to go? Amen? But today, we sing to the Almighty. Almighty. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is trustworthy. He turns water into wine. And today, He seeks to do something amazing in your life and mine as well today. So as we worship together today, would you just let the praises of the Lord flow from your heart and out of your mouth today. And let's sing some just great songs of our faith that adore our Savior because He is worthy of our praise. He is almighty. He is mighty to save. Is our Savior today. If you're able, would you stand together with us as we sing in Almighty?
to the Lord how marvelous As we pray together, reach over and hold your neighbor's hand, please. Dear Lord, we stand before you united in our love for you and our total wonderment and amazement at your amazing grace, love, and mercy. Bless us as we go through this worship service today. Help us to open our hearts to you. Help us to open our hearts to the reading from John today. Help us to always be conscious of our neighbor's needs, physically, spiritually, mentally, and help us to be prepared to help those needs. As you inspired Paul to write, for we are created in God's, Im in God's image, in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which you prepared in advance for us to do. Help us to leave, live these words as we go through this week. And now as we come through the offering, help it to be reflective of our love and commitment to your son, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.
on that a blessing and and every week it's just been wonderful all the different folks that have come and shared with us in worship and Kevin thank you for being with us this week and uh, it's great to have you with us leading worship and God just continues to do great things and so um, what a great time of worship this morning thinking about the power of the Lord has it been a great time of worship this morning <laughs> God is just just speaking to us and moving and uh, we want to listen to his word this morning um, you know, I suppose every pastor has the different stories. Some of them are from uh, interesting baptisms, uh, like the person I wasn't sure I was going to ever get under the water. And seminary professors tell you that if you get them under the water, they'll come up on their own. But they never said what to do if you couldn't get them all the way under. And I decided in that moment that a good splash to the face would suffice. And we got on uh, out of that situation. Um, you know, other preacher stories are from funerals. And uh, still others are from meetings or home visits. And then there are stories from weddings. You know, I, I enjoy the front row seat that I get to weddings. The, the nervous excitement of the groom as we wait to come in and as he stands and waits for his bride or the tears in a daddy's eyes as he's about to give his daughter away or the little conversations between the bride and groom that, that only we get to experience up there on the platform and uh, just wonderful little things. But weddings often offer funny stories too because of the characters that can be involved. You've experienced them, right? The crazy aunt, uh, the domineering mother of the bride, the overly helpful mother-in-law-to-be, uh, the nutty groomsman, or, <laughs> I got an amen on the mother-in-law one, or, <laughs> or maybe the sister who tries to run her sister's wedding. And I love to observe that because I think, yes, yeah, sister, I know why you ain't married yet and you ain't ever going to be married. <laughs> So this is your only chance, right? <laughs> and you know, there's just adding a bunch of stress because it's every girl's dream to have a wonderful day. And uh, you have a recipe for perfection or disaster or just some good stories no matter what. And sometimes at the wedding, you need a miracle. Perhaps it's the hairdo that won't do or the cake that people mutilate. Both happened at our wedding and... This morning, we're going to encounter a wedding story, and it's also the story of Jesus' first miracle. And at this particular wedding, a crisis occurred, and a miracle was needed. Now, the crisis was one that we Baptists never experience, and that was that the wine ran out. Our Catholic and Episcopalian friends might run into that, but not necessarily us Baptists. But don't get hung up on the wine. Don't even think that this passage is about wine, even though Jesus changes water into wine. The central idea of the text is not Jesus made wine, so party on. In fact... The central idea of the text is not about the wine at all. It's about the story behind the wine. And the central idea of the text is Jesus has the power to transform. Our text is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I want to begin with verses 1 and 2 to set the scene. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. <clears throat> Jesus' mother was there and... Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. 
When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. You know, a few days had passed since Jesus had called his first disciples. He probably had five or six by the time he goes to this wedding. And, and they had all been invited to attend. And we should note that the bride and groom are not mentioned. We get central characters. We get disciples. We get Jesus' mother. We get Jesus. We get that there's a wedding. But we don't know who the bride and groom were. And there is significance in their insignificance. Because that the couple is not mentioned provides us with a simple truth, and that is that these were simple, common people that Jesus knew. Regular people like you and me, simple friends whose wedding he attended, and in this simple place among simple people, Jesus would perform his first miracle. That should tell us something. It should tell us that Jesus does miracles for regular people in regular circumstances. And perhaps you need a miracle today. You know, first century weddings were very different from today's ceremonies. The wedding period actually began with the one-year betrothal period. And so this betrothal was much more binding than modern-day engagements. In fact, the only way you could get out of it was to have a certificate of divorce. But after that one year of betrothal came the wedding day. And, and on the wedding day, the groom and his friends came to get the bride at her parents' house. And then a procession set out through the town from the bride's home to the couple's new home. And it was at night and the dark roadway would be lit by all the townspeople with torches and, and uh, uh, oil lamps outside lighting the way. And that procession always took the long way through town so as many people as possible could be in part of the festivities. And so there was singing and there was music that accompanied all of that. And, and then they would arrive and they would have a wonderful wedding banquet. Basically, instead of a honeymoon, the couple held an open house for a week. I don't know about y'all, but thank God we don't do that anymore. But the first century Jews relished this because the bride and groom were considered king and queen for that week. They even actually wore crowns. They dressed in bridal robes and their word was considered to be law. And, and in lives that often contained a lot of poverty and difficulty, that was considered a supreme occasion. In fact, many people would never have another celebration like that in their life. They would experience that wonder of a week and then they would plod through the rest of their life. So therefore, the wedding feast, this week-long feast, which mixed ceremony and celebration, was very special. And since it was the highlight of the couple's life, hospitality was extremely important. The host not only took great care to provide whatever the guests needed, but he actually had a legal obligation to do so. There had to be plenty of food, there had to be plenty of wine, and that's where the problem came, came in this wedding in verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, Mary must have had some responsibility at the wedding for her to kind of know this. And so when she saw that the wine had run out, I imagine that she hurried over to Jesus, pulled him aside, and probably said kind of privately, son... 
they have no more wine. Now we can't overemphasize the distress in Mary's words. Remember, hospitality was key. A Jewish wedding running out of wine would be worse than a Baptist wedding running out of food. Okay, y'all got the y'all got the angst and the woe here now? Okay. And so the but the reason for all of this was not the wine. It's about the story behind the wine. Even the fact that the wine ran out isn't really about the wine running out. It's about what the wine symbolized, what it represented. In the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential. Not so the guests could drink to excess because old, the Old Testament makes very clear that intoxication is condemned. In fact, one writer I read said they diluted their wine with two parts wine to three parts water. So the reason for the wine was not so everybody could get drunk and have what they thought was a good time. The reason for the wine was it provided a symbol of exhilaration and celebration. In fact, it was so important that a lawsuit could be instituted if no wine was provided. So when Mary saw there was no more wine, she knew hopes were about to be crushed. That fear could even come into the host family for this breakdown of hospitality and therefore joy would fall. You see, the wine represented joy. Without it, there would be no cheers and the family could fall into disrepute. When Mary said they have no wine, she was saying they have no joy. And that was serious. At this precious time of life that should be filled with everything good, their joy had run out. And that's part of the story behind the wine. Have you ever had a time in life when your wine ran out? When the last bit of joy drained from your glass? Maybe it came in the midst of a series of difficult circumstances. Maybe it came in the midst of a time when you wondered where God was. Maybe it came when you had experienced a lot of loss, maybe a significant loss. Maybe it came during a time when friends betrayed you. Maybe it came during a time of job loss. But have you ever had that time when the wine ran out or almost did? I imagine you have. At some point in time, I have. And it's no fun. Perhaps, perhaps you're even there today. You know, the joy can, can drain even from Christians. And when the joy drains, you want it back. You want another sip of joy, but you can't seem to find it. Or, or when you do, it gets sucked right away from you again. And what you really need when the wine runs out is a miracle. And that's what we get here. Mary comes to Jesus instinctively. If if anyone knew who Jesus was, she did. She knew before anyone else. The angel Gabriel had told her who he was going to be. And for 30 years, she had watched him grow and mature and learn. And I'm sure Jesus had told his mom about 
the recent weeks, the baptism in the Jordan, the wilderness wanderings, John's declaration, behold, the Lamb of God. And all of that, I'm sure, was something that, that, that she knew about. And when she heard that, she was exhilarated knowing that he was about to take his place. And so in this moment of crisis, Mary went to Jesus and said, son, they have no wine. Now, her, his, his response to her may jar us a bit. He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Some translations just say, woman, why do you involve me? Now, we read that and we're like, hmm. Because I'm telling you right now, if I told my mom, hey, woman. <laughs> I'd be in trouble even at 41. But that was not a term of disrespect. In fact, Jesus addresses his mom another time in John's gospel. It's from the cross. And he says, woman, here is your son. It's not a term of disrespect in his context. He is showing actual respect, even though that doesn't sound like what we would do. But then Jesus tells her, why do you involve me? Because my time has not yet come. He gently reminds her, of his greater purpose, that he must follow God's timing. You know, it's also a general reminder to us that Jesus not, is not in the business solely of meeting social emergencies. He's not our cosmic genie who we call to our aid every time we have a problem or a wish. Nevertheless, Jesus does meet our needs, doesn't he? And he does so here. Mary turns from Jesus to the servants and she says in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. I find that interesting because she didn't know what Jesus would do. From his response, it kind of sounds like he wasn't going to do anything. But Mary was quite sure that he would do something. And whatever he would do would be the right thing. Whatever that was. And so the story continues in verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. You know, these six stone water jars were, were there for ceremonial washing. The Jews... Uh, would go through the ceremonial washing by, by rote. It was a ritualistic tradition of the law. It had little meaning to them anymore. It was just a dead, meaningless one. So again, there's a, there's a story behind the wine. The large jar, jars represent dead tradition. They were cold clay pots filled with ritualism, representing mankind with religion but no reality. And, you know, people sometimes try to find joy in ritual and religion and tradition. 
They think if they can do the right things the right way in the right place, they will have joy. But dead rituals lead to dead religion, which leads to dead life. A minister in another denomination posted a meme recently that had a picture from their denomination, a very traditional kind of picture, and it said, tradition shall triumph. And I didn't post a comment, but my immediate reaction was, yes, it will kill. (laughs) That's not what he meant, but that's what it will do. There's a place for tradition, but cold, dead tradition is meaningless. It has no wine. It has no joy. It always leads to death. So, yes, tradition shall triumph, but it won't triumph over Jesus. Because Jesus brings transformation just as we see here. You know, these jars were large. It says each could hold 20 or 30 gallons. Those are, that's big. And so together they could hold as much as 180 gallons of water. Lots of old tradition. Lots of death. And so Jesus calls for the servants to to fill up the jars. And so they do so. They do so to the brim. And again, there's a story behind the wine. Why do they fill them up? Why to the brim? Because Jesus said he came to fulfill the law right down to every last jot and tittle, right to the smallest marks in the Hebrew alphabet, right to the brim. And John will later tell us that Jesus is the living water. And so the water pots that represented cold, dead tradition and ritual are filled with the life-giving water of Jesus at the command of the master. And then Jesus tells them to draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. This guy was likely the master of ceremonies or kind of like the, the head caterer or something like that. And at some point, The water was transformed to wine. We don't know if it was already wine in the clay pots. We don't know if it's when they dipped it. We don't know if it's when he sipped it. Whatever the case, though, we know that the water turned into wine because the master tastes the water that had been turned to wine. And he thinks his servants have simply found another stash somewhere in the home. And he says, this is great. Everybody normally saves the best, the, the, gives the good stuff first and saves the worst stuff for last. When, once everybody's drunk and they can't tell what they're drinking, but you've, you've saved the best for last. And we should note that the people are not inebriated at this point, at least not the master, because he's able to tell the difference. And so because of what Jesus did that day, the feast continued Joy was restored. The people had wine again, really good wine. They had more than enough, presumably 180 gallons or so. And so we, we assume all six water pots were changed to wine so the week-long feast could continue unimpeded. You know, Jesus always gives a super abundance. For example, when it comes to salvation, Jesus doesn't just forgive us of our sins He gives us abundant life. He doesn't just save us in this life. He gives us eternal life. He gives us super abundance. But he also gives the best. You know, never is the work of Jesus second rate. Never is it subpar. It is always the best. Isn't it interesting that the world's finest wine ever produced 
was not made in a vineyard of France or served in some fancy international restaurant, but it was made in a little village in a little town 2,000 years ago for some common people's wedding. And yet, the wine and its story is valued today not for its rarity, but for what it reveals about its maker, Jesus Christ. So in your mind, see that party continue. See the smiles bright. Everybody's having a great time. They're doing the Jewish dancing and having a a wonderful time celebrating. Laughter is everywhere. Joy has returned. But it's not simply because of the wine. You see, the story's not about the wine. It's about the story behind the wine. Really, it's about the person behind the wine, which is Jesus. And John clues us into that in verse 11. He says, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. John calls this a sign, and we're going to encounter Jesus doing several miracles in this gospel. It's important to understand, though, that Jesus didn't do miracles just to do them, just to show off because he could, or just because people asked him to. He performed every miracle for a purpose, for a sign. And the sign for this one, the story behind the wine, is Jesus has the power to transform. Jesus has the power to to transform. Jesus didn't change the water into wine because the grocery store was closed and no one could get more. He didn't change the water into wine because his mom asked him to. He didn't change the water into wine just to meet the social need of some friends. He did it to show that he has the power to transform. But not just water into wine. Much, much more. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. He changes the water of Christ-likeness into the wine of richness and fullness of eternal life in Christ. The water of the law into the wine of the gospel. And if he can do that, then he can change us. He can fill our glass for the first time or he can fill it anew. He can bring life from death and joy from sorrow. You know, this story about a wedding that almost lost its joy is a bounding, joyous, leaping kind of story of what Christ can do for us. If if your wine of joy has run out, or if you've never had it to begin with, you need Jesus this morning. You know, people try to fill their glass with all kinds of things in order to find joy. The book of Ecclesiastes is largely King Solomon's attempt at that. Solomon sought to fill his glass with wisdom and knowledge and achievements and business and parties and possessions and and a whole lot more. And in a lot of those things, there was nothing intrinsically wrong with them. They were natural joys of life that God created to give us some joy. But a time comes when natural joys no longer satisfy. They bring no exhilaration. They bring no life. When you have something special all the time, it's no longer really special. I mean, a steak dinner's great, but you don't want it every night. 
A trip to Disney is fun, but living there might get a little annoying. Solomon found that every little joy eventually came up wanting. No matter how much joy he had or how good it was at first, how, how wonderful it tasted and how sweet it, it was, it, it always petered out. The natural wine couldn't bring lasting joy. The glass might fill for a while and Solomon's heart would be glad, but, but then the glass always emptied and Solomon found the pursuit meaningless, he said. Utterly meaningless. It wasn't until he focused on God that he found that his glass became full and running over. That was the miracle Solomon needed, and that's the miracle you need today. You need to drink the wine of Jesus, some of you, for the first time. Uh, Others of you need to drink the wine of Jesus anew today. You know you're a follower of Jesus, but perhaps circumstances have drained your glass. You're as desperate as Mary. I have no more wine. I have no joy. My life has been sucked dry. You need a miracle. So go to Jesus, just as Mary did. You're a believer, go to him instinctively, just as Mary did. Go believing in who he is, just as Mary did. And allow him to fix the problem as he sees fit. Just as Mary did. Because his will be the best in the right way. Allow him to fill your cup. Find that joy again. Because it really is joy. You know, as I reflected on this story this week, I, I kept thinking about songs from church camp when I was a kid. And, and I realized we Baptist kids sang about wine a lot. We had this song that went, let's stomp grapes together, running out all over. Stomp on the grapes, turn out the new wine, give thanks to the Lord forever. If you'll bless him, he'll bless you. Fill your cup with the wine that's new. Stomp on the grapes, turn out the new wine, give thanks to the Lord forever. It was happy. (laughs) And you should see 300, you know, third graders doing that at camp. Having a great time singing about wine. But that's because it represents joy. And Jesus wants to bring that joy to us. As I thought about that song and others like it, I I realized they're so full of joy. And we're to be full of joy as believers. And so if our glass has become empty, we need it to be filled again. We need to drink from the wine of Jesus to fill our cup and let it overflow. You know, I hope that if you've never drank of the wine of Jesus that you would receive it today. And that if you need your cup to be filled, you'll fill it up today. Because it's really not about the wine, it's about the story behind the wine. The most expensive bottle of wine today is a 1787 Chateau Lafitte. The bottle sold for $156,450. Now, I know nothing about wine, but when I saw 1787, I thought, 
can wine that old even be good? And then I thought, if you pay $156,000 for it, why in the world would you ever drink it? Well, the answer is no. Wine isn't good that's 200 and something years old. So why the hefty price tag on that 1787 Chateau Lafitte? It's because that particular bottle has etched into it the initials T-H period J. Those initials are from Thomas Jefferson, who during the time that he served as ambassador to France would often travel to Bordeaux and Burgundy and fine wine for his cellar back home. And his initials etched into two other bottles have also fetched handsome sums, though not like this Chateau Lafitte. People have paid more for these bottles of wine than most of us pay for our cars or even maybe our house. And it's not because of the wine. It's because of the story behind the wine. The wine has no value. It's worthless. It's tasteless. It's the initials of the owner that give it value. Are the initials of Jesus on you today? Have you allowed him to purchase you in salvation and to fill you with his wine that is valuable? If you're a believer today, have you dusted off the initials lately and realized that you're a born-again, paid-in-full child of Jesus Christ and that you are of immeasurable value to him? May the Lord fill us anew today. May he overflow in us today. Lord, we thank you for the wine that you give that can pour into us and overflow out of us and that can give us that joy. And so, Lord, today I pray for those in this room who've never trusted you as their Lord and Savior. I pray, God, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, help them to see their need. May they lift up their glasses to you and be filled. Lord, for those of us who are believers today and who are feeling empty because of something that sucked the joy right out of us, God, I pray that we would come to you and we'd be filled anew. Lord, we can't do anything else this morning but come to you just as we are and allow you to work in us because you are our Savior and our Lord and our Master. And so, Lord, we submit to you today. We bring our lives to you and we ask for you to move. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.